Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today is a native of Jackson, Mississippi, living in Memphis since 1988. She's the author of five books, two novels, a short story collection, a memoir, and an essay collection, and editor of three anthologies. Her latest book, Pilgrim Interrupted, will be released June 7th, 2022. She published her first book at age 65. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Susan Cushman. Thanks, Julia. It's great to meet you. Great to be here. Susan, the first question on Authors Over 50 is always, what took you so long to write your first book? It's funny because my recent book, which is called Pilgrim Interrupted, talks about how life interrupts, and that book is a spiritual pilgrimage, but life can interrupt everything. And even though I loved writing as a child and junior high literary journal, high school um, newspaper staff. I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And so, uh, you know, then, but I got married young when I was barely 19 and I uh, was putting my husband through finishing school. So I had to go to work for a number of years to, to make money to buy groceries. And then we had started adopting children. My husband's career is super busy. So I chose to be a stay at home mom for a lot of years with the three kids and soccer mom and all of that. And even though I have a lot of friends who have, who are doing it at the same time, who are writing and raising kids, I just couldn't do it. The, the writing I could do while raising kids was more like um, publishing newsletters, doing advertising, doing marketing, doing business-like things. But the creative mind for me, needing a lot of quiet, a lot of time to think, you know, when you're writing, you're thinking more than you're actually putting words down, or at least I am. And I just didn't feel I could do a good job of that while the kids were still at home. So, and they're all adopted, two from South Korea and one from Mississippi. And so that was a, a lot of busy years. Now they're 44, 40, and 39, and we have four granddaughters. So, but in 2001, my youngest child left for college. Of course, right the month after she left, 9-11 happened. Our oldest son uh, joined the army and went to Iraq and Afghanistan. So, you know, that was a little bit unset, more than a little bit unsettling. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to start writing. And then I got cancer and um, cervical cancer. Fortunately, I'm fine. That was 21 years ago. And then I took another detour before writing, and it was more into spiritual art. 
I'm a convert to Orthodox Christianity, like the Greek Orthodox, only our parish is Antiochian. So I studied painting, or we call it writing icons, using the ancient Byzantine style with egg temperer and gold leaf. I was going on pilgrimages to monasteries, studying with the nuns, doing a lot of that for several years. And the only writing I was doing was primarily essays and some poetry. Uh, I was working on a memoir, but I didn't want to publish it. I wasn't ready, and there was a lot of private things I didn't want to go public with, you know. So finally, um, after several years of writing icons and writing essays and all of that, in the late, I don't know, 2006 or seven, I got more serious about my writing. I started a blog. I started going to writing workshops and conferences. I started submitting my chapters of my works to MFA-led uh, workshops and to other writers and writing groups and all of that. So I got really serious then. And um, so I was in my 50s then, yeah. But I was 65 by the time the first book came out. So six years later, I'm gonna have my eighth book coming out in June. So I'm making up for lost time and I'm really having the time of my life with it. I'm having a great time with it. And I don't regret waiting because a whole lot of my writing, I didn't have the content in my life yet to write this in my twenties and thirties and forties. I mean, there are a lot of young people that are writing really wonderful things. I just didn't have it yet. So this is the time for me to be writing. You know, this is, this seventh decade of my life feels like the best one so far in many ways. I, I call it writing in life's sweetest third. And I, I think those of us who are writing later have, have figured that out, that we needed more time to develop our wisdom and our voice and You've been quite prolific since you started that first book and one to be released in June this year and five books and, um, you know, share your routine for publishing so many books in a short period of time. Well, it is so all over the place and I think it's very unusual. I mean, to start with, with my first novel, Cherry Bomb, which was published in 2017, um, took about five or six years to write and edit. And one reason it took so long was I did work with a New York literary agent for a while on it. And then I did not like um, the direction she wanted to take the book in. So I left that relationship and ended up with a small press out of Mississippi. You know, the good news was he got what I was trying to do. The editing made the book better. The bad news is it's a tiny little press. So it just didn't get you know, the, the agent might could have gotten me a book deal with a bigger press, could have gotten out there more. I'm in a little pond, but I'm super proud of that book and Cherry Bomb. It'll, it may always be my favorite um, because it um, I took a lot of the things I didn't publish in an initial memoir and I let them form the fiction for that book. And because um, it's about a young girl who escapes a religious cult, throws up graffiti, um, gets a scholarship to the Southern College of Art and Design, meets a famous artist, goes to a monastery, learn about icons, you know, and then there's a mystical element where she and the artist and one of the nuns end up having a special relationship that I won't tell you what is. So that will probably always be my favorite book because there's so much of me in there, but it's really completely fictional. 
So that came out in August of 2017. But while I was waiting for it to come out, I probably have ADD because I have to have more than one thing going on at a time. While I was waiting for it to come out, my mother was declining with Alzheimer's in a nursing home in Jackson, Mississippi. And I was going down there constantly. You know, first I had sold her house, moved her into assisted living, then eventually into nursing home care because my father died young at 68. So mom had been alone for a while. And so I started a blog and I eventually took 60 of those blog posts and turned them into a memoir called Tangles and Plaques, A Mother and Daughter Face Alzheimer's. And it was such a quick project compared to the cherry bomb, the novel that was going on through the next stage and the next stage that I ended up with it getting published first in January of 2017 by a small press um, out of Texas. So that came out in January. And then once again, I don't have a literary agent. So I'm just finding places here and here and here. And between the memoir and the novel, I, was, uh, I had a real close friend in her 80s, approaching 90 now, a neighbor. And we were having one of our wonderful kitchen table coffees talking about what I, what I was going to do next. And she had gotten her PhD in aging when she was 65 and written about it and was just really a mentor to me. So we came up with the idea for me to put together an anthology called A Second Blooming, Becoming the Women We're Meant to Be. And I invited 20 women authors to contribute to it. I even got a forward by Anne Lamott. I had some great authors, Cassandra King, a whole bunch of really good authors in there. And Mercer University Press jumped on it. They loved it. So it ended up coming out in May of 2017. So January, May, and August, I had three books by three different publishers. It wouldn't have happened, but I was a little bit sneaky. I didn't tell each of the publishers about the other books until I had to, because one publisher would have never done that, you know, and it could have been a marketing nightmare, but they were such different genres with such different target audiences that sometimes the same bookstores invited me back, some of them all three times that year, because different people came to hear the memoir about Alzheimer's or the anthology or the um, novel, you know, they were so completely different. So that was a banner year and it was, it was fabulous. The year I turned 66 and, uh, but doing the anthology was so much easier than writing a book. If you like to organize things, one of my favorite things to do is find people that are gifted and good at things and, and make use of that and get them out there. So when you do an anthology, that's what you get to do. You get to, I don't call for submissions. I invite specific people. So I decided to do it again. So in 2018, my second anthology, Southern Writers on Writing was published in May uh, by University Press of Mississippi. University presses, by the way, writers, they are wonderful to work with. They have all kinds of integrity, uh, support. Um, um, you know, you get your, your work gets read by early readers and critiqued and they're just terrific to work with. So those, I've had nothing but good experiences with university presses. And that had 26 essays, this time by 13 men and 13 women. And that came out in May of 2018. So then the next year, 2019, I'll um, oh, back it up, Cherry Bomb, the novel, my publisher's from Starkville, Mississippi, and he knows people in the libraries in small towns all over Mississippi. So he asked me to go on a little library, small town library 
mini tour as part of my marketing for Cherry Bomb. And I did, and I went to places like Eupora and Pontotoc and Aberdeen. And even though I'm from Jackson and went to Ole Miss in Oxford, I had never been to a lot of these other towns. So I went and spoke to the friends of the library groups in a lot of those towns. And, and I got back home from each visit and I would start to write a blog post about the visit because that's part of what I do on my blog. But something in my mind clicked on a light and said, what if you write short stories instead? Then you can fictionalize what happens, make it more colorful, you know, still use a bit of the history of the town. I created a fictional author. I named her Adele Covington and I had her, her go on the book tour. And in each town, she met someone um, who had issues that she had experienced somewhere in her life, Alzheimer's, cancer, adoption, sexual abuse, homelessness, um, all these different issues. And so she became kind of like, some people said it's sort of like touched by an angel in Mississippi because she helped the people in each of the towns. So um, that was published in August uh, of 2019, Friends of the Library. And uh, several readers liked one story a whole lot in that one. And it was, that story was John and Mary Margaret about a black boy from Mississippi, white girl from, I mean, a white, black boy from Memphis, a white girl from Jackson, Mississippi, who fall in love on the Ole Miss campus in the 60s, which didn't go well. So they said, we wanna know more of this story. So I turned it into a novel. So John and Mary Margaret was my second novel, which was published in 2021. That's right, yeah. So uh, that was a lot of fun and I may consider writing short stories again. Um, because they're a whole lot easier to write than novels because the narrative arc is shorter. You know, it's so much easier in 20 pages than 300 pages to do that arc and to hold the attention the whole time and to have the conflict you need and to have the details you need. But I do love novels. So, you know, we'll see if I have another novel in me. So that came out in 2021. And, um, so meanwhile, oh, right before that, let me back it up. Um, I, as you are, am a member of a large, probably the world's largest book club organization, the Pulpwood Queens. And um, I had been, they have an annual, every January, they have an annual conference. It's been going on for over 20 years now. Kathy L. Murphy is the founder and director. So for their 20th anniversary in 2020, she asked if I would organize and edit an anthology to celebrate it, and I did, and it's called the Pulpwood Queens Celebrate 20 Years. And so um, what we did was we invited not only all the authors who had ever spoken at those 20 January meetings, but a lot of the members of the book clubs and um, others, publicists, agents, people who had worked with the Pulpwood Queens in any way. So that was another anthology, my third anthology to edit and, and put together. So that happened actually in December, 2019, the same year as Friends of the Library, that's right. So I thought, what's next? And I've always wanted to do a spiritual book that um, as a convert from the Presbyterian Protestant faith of my childhood in Mississippi to the Orthodox, Christian Orthodox faith, it is so different. And my first essay ever published in a book was in 2012, and it was published in the book Circling Faith, um, Southern Women and Spirituality, University of Alabama Press, wonderful collection. And it was a little bit about um, 
my experience visiting monasteries and uh, painting icons and um, meeting with a spiritual mother, the abbots there. So, but I've always wanted to more, and I have essays, you know, that have been published about my spiritual journey. So what I decided to do was to put a lot of previously published essays from anthologies and journals and even my blog together in a collection. And that's the one that's coming out in June and it's called Pilgrim Interrupted. And so these essays are, are about, they're in groups, like there's a group about orthodoxy and icons and monasteries, but there's also groups about mental health issues, you know, with sexual abuse, eating disorders, addiction issues. There's a family section. You know, we have the three adopted kids. We have a lot of interesting family dynamics. There's a section about writing and publishing, the Southern voice that's a part of all of this. So it's really a personal slash spiritual memoir, mixed genre, essays, excerpts from fiction books and poetry and photographs. So it's something brand new that I've never done anything like it before. I was looking here quickly. So, you know, it'll even have pages with photographs, which I always love in a memoir because then you kind of get a, a visual on the people that are being talked about. And that comes out in June. So um, I'm really excited about the journey and it's it's been a lot of fun and I hope it keeps going as long as I can. A lot, a lot of your titles, Susan, could be themes for authors over 50, a second blooming, becoming the women we're meant to be and pilgrim interrupted. And you and I have a lot of uh, the same touchstones with adoption and uh, writing these novels that um, your novel, John and Mary Margaret, um, was in the 1960s as my no names to be given and both involved an interracial couple and yours felt very memoir like did you base the story or characters on real life people or events in your own life only half of it uh, mary margaret the white girl from jackson mississippi who goes to Ole Miss and pledges Tridelt and wants to be a writer. All of that's me. That's all of that's very much me. And it was super fun and easy to write Mary Margaret. I, I didn't have to do very much research at all. But John, the black boy from Memphis, I had to do a lot of research on. And it's tricky for a white woman to be writing a protagonist as the black male. And sometimes you get pushback for that, you know, but that's cultural appropriation. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal about a year ago um, about James Baldwin and some other civil rights activists. But the author said, that it is the a white or it is any person's duty to cross the cultural divide and write about other cultures and other races that um creativity and imagination depend on doing that and it's our duty to do that you know i remember when Catherine stockett's book the help came out you know which was based in my hometown of jackson mississippi and although it was a novel you know it struck a lot of chords and she got some pushback for writing from a white person's voice but that's cultural appropriation and i thought she did a great job and so in writing john and Mary margaret um her relationship because they fall in love on the Ole Miss campus. That, I, I never experienced that. That was completely fictional. And I was writing during the summer when the um, racial protests in all over the country were really growing a lot. And I, my daughter, who's from South Korea, her husband is black and she has two mixed race 
children. And then my son, who's from Korea, his wife is Hmong, and they have two mixed race Asian daughters. So this whole thing about race and culture were just strongly in my heart. And COVID was going on. So it had COVID not been new with no vaccines yet, this was the summer of 2020, I would have been out in the streets in Memphis at the protests. We had some really good uh, nonviolent protests here. <clears throat> and I was frustrated, stuck at home. And my husband said, well, you have a voice. Uh, I think you're a writer. I think you could write this. And I'm like, you know, they don't need somebody else to write another book about race. But then the John and Mary Margaret idea came up, you know, from which I'd written in the short story. And I thought I can expand that. And the book actually covers 50 years of uh, civil rights history in Mississippi and in Memphis. So I did a lot of research for that, um, including what happened on the Ole Miss campus, even though my husband and I were there during part of the time I wrote about, I still researched it because we weren't involved with the Black Student Union and the protests that were going on. I really, this is gonna sound cliche, I really lived in that white privilege bubble and I really wasn't aware of a lot that was going on. Uh, so this is my chance to go back and go, I wish I had been aware. And, and I'm hoped that with the book, it would create some awareness, you know, in, in readers. And I've gotten a lot of feedback that it has. It's given a lot of people cause, you know, to, to think about it. I read that summer, I read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, which is a masterclass in, in race issues in the United States. India and Nazi Germany. And um, it's just, it's powerful. It was quite an education reading that. And that was part of my inspiration. You know, I have two black author friends, Jeffrey Blunt and Ralph Eubanks, who also guided me. They read early, early editions, gave me a lot of really helpful feedback, and then wrote beautiful blurbs, and then interviewed me for my virtual launches because nothing was in person then at uh, Novel Books in Memphis and Lemuria Books in Jackson, Mississippi. So that was terrific bookends to the whole project. Uh, Jeffrey was the first black producer of NBC News in New York where he worked for 25 years. And Ralph is a native of Mississippi who is, uh, is a visiting professor at Ole Miss and has written several wonderful books. The most recent one is A Place Like Mississippi. That's Ralph Eubanks. So I have to give a shout out to those two guys because I don't think I could have done the book as well without their help. I'm glad you're um, addressing those issues because I have those same thoughts a lot. Ralph Eubanks is actually from my hometown of Mount Olive, Mississippi, and he oh, okay. was a real close friend of my brother's. And yeah. uh, we're, we're real proud to sing his praises. He's, he's done very well in the publishing industry. Um, and I, my second book is actually from a Latina Era's point of view, owning the largest ranch in Texas. And so we do have um, thoughts about, you know, should be, we be writing in, in someone else's perspective? And I, I like the way that you address that. I, I did have a sensitivity reader, a Latina sensitivity reader, read my work as well as a Native American sensitivity reader to make sure that I didn't make any blunders um, and discredit you know, their races and tribes. So I hope that's going to, to go across well, but I, I'm like you, I'm, we're fiction writers and we do want to call attention, attention to, to some of those 
issues that don't always just come from our own race or our own background. Right. Exactly. Uh, do you know uh, the author Johnny Bernhardt? Yes. You know, and, and of course, she's written recently about human trafficking in Texas. And, and again, has crossed that cultural divide, you know, with the Hispanic uh, people that are involved. And uh, I've forgotten the name of her book that's about that. But um, she would be interesting to, to talk with on here sometime too. Yeah. Johnny and I are good friends. We've been serendipitously put on panels together at the AWP in 2020, the Mississippi Book Festival. Uh, seems like there was a third time we've been put on panels together. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's what's so great about this writing community is, is everyone is so gracious and, and so generous with their time and talents and, and sharing. I've never been in another industry that's been quite so gracious to each other. I agree. Well, Susan, tell us a little bit about the book that you're going to share with us today and, and um, kind of set it up and read a few paragraphs for us to hear the tone and voice in the book where you'd like to, um, to share. You probably warned me about that and I've forgotten. <laughs> so, um, Pilgrim Interrupted, so there, it has um, six sections within it, and each section has a mix of mostly previously published essays, poetry, mostly not previously published, um, and excerpts from some of my books and a few unpublished essays. So each section is kind of a mix, but I put them together thematically. The first section, Icons, Orthodoxy and Spirituality, which is probably the longest section. And it has um, an essay in it called Pilgrim Interrupted. And uh, maybe I should read a bit of that because my husband and I were in Greece. We found that page. It is on 58, uh, on a pilgrimage in 2007. Yes. And uh, I'll, I'll just read a little bit from that because it's the title, the yeah. title say, of the book. I was in the cave of the apocalypse on the island of Patmos, Greece on October 21st, 2007. It was a feast day of St. Christodoulos who founded the monastery of the Holy Apostle John in 1088. Aside from the sense of awe, one would expect to feel in such a sacred place, my emotions were pretty much intact until, well, let me set this up for you. The evening before, we had joined the large crowd of pilgrims at the main church of the monastery for a vigil. Three to four hour service in the eve of a feast. The music was powerful. At one point, all the monks came out from the altar area and other places throughout the church and formed a semicircle in front of the abbot. Their voices swelled to the top of this ancient church, resounding off the towering iconographic images that fill the walls and even the dome. A huge chandelier lit by dozens of beeswax candles reflected back the gold leaf of the halos surrounded us. I felt like Prince Vladimir's envoys when they walked into Hagia Sophia Orthodox Cathedral in Constantinople near the end of the 10th century. Their mission was to find a religion that Prince Vladimir could embrace and offer to the people of Russia. In their report, they said, we didn't know whether we were in heaven on earth. 
heavenly as it was, we chose to attend church in the cave of apocalypse the following morning, rather than returning to the big church. We were drawn to the intimacy and history of this place where the Holy Apostle John had heard the voice of God speak to him the words that would become known as the book of Revelation. My husband is an Orthodox priest. We were traveling with another priest and his wife, old friends from Mississippi. So instead of reading, because it would take a long time, I'll just tell you what happened next. So there's only about six of us in this tots in the little church for the service, a priest and an altar boy. I don't know if there was a deacon. It was a small little group of us. You couldn't have fit more than 20 or 30 people in there for the service. And it's a small, intimate service. And I was in a very prayerful place in my heart. I was in awe of being in there. St. John, the evangelist, is the patron saint of my church here in Memphis. You know, my husband and I and this other couple were on this pilgrimage. So we were shutting out all the noise and activity of the world, or so we thought. Suddenly, this woman comes in with a clipboard in her hand, and the altar boy comes out, and they have a little chat back and forth, like they know each other and all that. He goes back in the altar, and the service is still going on. Suddenly, a group of tourists from a cruise boat parked at the bottom of the mountain start, start coming in in their khaki shorts and white kids and fanny packs and cameras just clicking away and chatting and looking at everything. Well, it took them at least 30 minutes to come through, go touch the place St. John touched, took a picture, even though the sign says no cameras, you know, walk in front and just gawk and awe at everything, walk between us and the altar and out the other side. It goes on for about 30 minutes, you know. I mean, the service is an hour and a half, but still, uh, I was interrupted. My pilgrimage was interrupted by that. I let it bother me. I let it disturb my peace. Um, you know, finally I kind of pulled back in and thought, okay, that's fine. You know, they got exposed to uh, beautiful, my beautiful Orthodox faith in a historic place. Isn't that a good thing that that happened? You know, I tried to quit being all fussy about it. And then afterwards we went um, to the apartment where the priest who served the, the service was and a few people had, we had a little lunch and all of that he was not at all disturbed by that it goes on all the time and he's just like thank god to god be the glory that these people are coming in and seeing this and i thought wow what if that was your job to serve liturgy to a little handful of real pilgrims and let all these tourists in possibly sunday after sunday you know i don't know so that's the title essay you know, for Pilgrim Interrupted. Gives you a little taste of, of that part of my journey. Um, the second section is writing, editing, and publishing. And I actually have a lot of um, essays that tell some of the journey that I've just told you and the listeners here today. Uh, the third section is called Alzheimer's, Caregiving, Death, and Dying. In addition to my mother's Alzheimer's, which was a, a long journey, and I was involved in in long distance caregiving with her. And like I told you, I wrote about that in Tangles and Plaques. I also lost my um, uh, father at age 68 to cancer and he had hospice care. And an uncle, a brother and a goddaughter all died within a few years of each other. And um, I was involved with through hospice and was with several of them holding their hands as they died. So that's a 
difficult but beautiful experience. You, you do feel like you're touching heaven and earth at the same time. So I wrote a lot about that and some of those essays are in here. Then the next uh, section four is family and adoption. A little bit about my childhood, a little bit about my adopted children. And section five is place. And uh, I wrote about, you know, are these my people? And, um, and some of it's about the South and Mississippi and, and, and writing in place. And some of it's about my new people uh, in, in my Orthodox faith. And then the last section, the sixth section is mental health, addiction and sexual abuse. And so I write a lot about that. Um, and these are mostly previously published um, and about um, the sexual abuse as a child, the consequent eating disorders, struggle with addiction, um, and healing, you know, from all of that. Recently, we had a women's retreat at our church, and one thing that the speaker had us all do was do a quick thing with the decades of our life and write one significant thing that happened in each decade, and is there a thread there? And of course, I had seven decades. I was one of the older people <laughs> there, and um, I noticed it was really a good experience to do this because I noticed the thread was healing, that I've been looking for healing, been looking for it through prayer, through God, through church, through counseling, therapy, um, through writing, you know, all the different ways that I've been looking for healing. So it was, it was a wonderful experience. So Pilgrim Interrupted is being published by Brother Mockingbird, uh, publishing out of um, the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. Melissa Carrigy is the publisher. And she's the same one who published the Pulpwood Queens Celebrate. 20 years and she is great to work with it's a small press but um she's she does a really great job and it's just a delightful person to work with so this launches june the 7th and i've already setting up some events for that and happy to be here talking about it thank you well susan your words are inspiring and your journey has been quite the journey and our writers over 50 are such a unique set do you have any advice, specific advice for writers 50 and above? Or what advice do you wish you had heard when you started? Uh, you know, I don't have advice I wish I'd heard because I'm, I'm, I wouldn't do it any other way. You know, uh, other, I have no regrets. Don't go, I wish I had done this when I was younger. Uh, trust the fact that you have a lot of wisdom now and life experience that you didn't have when you were younger. Trust the fact that um, your readers might not just be people over 50, but they might be the younger set. You know, when, um, when I did the anthology, A Second Blooming, Becoming the Women Were Meant to Be, um, some of the people who contributed to that were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s talking about seconds in our lives, second chances at a career, second chances after surviving cancer or becoming sober or a new marriage or, you know, whatever, a different faith. So um, I would just say, you know, trust that this could be the best time, that the best don't regret the past. Trust that the best is here forward and, and write and find people to share your writing with, a writing group or workshops, find people to share your writing with, because writing can be lonely. You know, it's a, it's a one person job when you're doing the creative part, yeah. I think that's a perfect way to 
To end our time together, I thank you so much, Susan, for being with us today. And we are very happy that you're one of our authors over 50. Thank you. I am too. (laughs) Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.